Well, let me invite you uh, to be seated wherever you are. Uh, As we prepare to encounter God's word this morning, let me encourage you, if you feel comfortable, to leave your camera on. Uh, This helps me, as it reminds me I'm preaching to people who exist and are real, but also reminds uh, one another that we hear God's word and receive God's word as a community of God's people to be lived out together as his church in this world. And so whatever you feel comfortable with, I invite you to turn with me to 1 John 2, verses 28. And we're going to be reading all the way to uh, chapter 3, verse 3. With your Bibles open or looking on the screen, read with me. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray together. Father, as we've already confessed this morning, though it is true we are your children, uh, we act so often as if we are children of this world. We are thankful that as your kids, as your children, you forgive us and you again welcome us in. Father, I pray as we contemplate this glorious truth of adoption this morning, that we as a church uh, would live from a place of being your children above all else, that this would be our foundational and our motivational identity as we head into this week. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, this past year, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, uh, one who happened to live and work and write and teach in Vancouver, uh, he passed away. J.I. Packer was over 90 years old when he died, over 90 years old. And among his many books, and he was a prolific writer and teacher, perhaps his best known book is his book, Knowing God. And I want to encourage you right now, I don't care what you're reading, if it's not Knowing God, if you have not read Knowing God, you should put that book down and read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. This is wildly influential, foundational work that's changed the Christian landscape. And in this book, if you've read it, you know, J.I. Packer makes a big deal about the doctrine, the teaching of adoption, of adoption. This truth that you and I have become, as John has expressed this morning, children of God. I want to quote to you from Knowing God. Listen to just how big of a deal Packer thinks adoption is. Read these words. Packer says, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child 
than having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And if you've heard Packer speak, perhaps you can envision him in his British gentle accent saying those words. Packer, to little surprise, is, is right. But he's not right because he has a big theological brain. He's right because he's read and believed passages like we just read from 1 John. If you want to get Christianity, understand Christianity, know Christianity, you have to get what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read that again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so we are. Our text this morning, our passage, is for all who've ever asked, what is Christianity all about? But as Packer reminds us, adoption isn't only for those exploring Christianity. For all of us, being a child of God ought to control our worship, our prayers, and our whole outlook on life. So there are two very simple questions I want us to answer this morning. The first, what does it mean to be a child of God? What does this mean? What are we talking about? And second, how does a child of God live? How does a child of God live in this and so if you have your Bibles, again, we're going to go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Now we're going to start at what I think is the theological center of this passage. And then we're going to work out from this theological core, if you will, uh, the truths that necessarily follow. Again, John has been calling the recipients of this letter children, right? We've heard that all the way along. And this morning, he's going to give us the theological reason why he's been calling his readers and you and me children. Look again at 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Adoption is a gift that results, that comes from costly love. This past Thursday uh, was my third son's birthday. And I asked him on Wednesday night, the night before his birthday, uh, what he wanted for breakfast. And to little surprise, because he's his mother's son, he said, I want donuts. I want donuts for breakfast tomorrow morning. And so early Thursday morning, I, I got in the car and I drove to Lucky's on Main. Maybe you know it. And I bought a, a box of donuts to come back and celebrate uh, my third son's birthday with. Now, now wh why did I do this? If you remember Thursday morning this past week, it had just snowed. I could have said, ah, you know, the roads are probably not good. I probably won't drive there and, and, and get that. You know, I could have also said, you know, Lucky's is expensive. Why don't I just walk down to Tim Hortons, get some of that, you know, bring that back. You know, that'll be fine. Well, why did I do this? See, both of these reasons, these excuses, were mere fleeting thoughts when pushed up against, when confronted with the love I have for my son. Now, the love I showed and the love I do show to my kids to bring them a gift is very limited. And if you're a parent, 
Oftentimes you're struck, uh, you're struck by the limits of your love. And the gift itself, in this case, uh, a three-year-old and a donut, was fleeting, lasting uh, mere moments. But it's not quite the case with our Heavenly Father. Our Father's love, like John talks about here, is a love defined by the sending of his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. It's a limitless love, a total and complete love. And it's this love that brings us this new title, this new birth, this new identity. This is the imagery we encounter in this one simple verse. The Father is bringing to us a love gift, as it were. And instead of donuts being inside that orange box, there is something much, much greater, something much, much more profound. There's a certificate of adoption, a note of our adoption. Now, for those of you who have adopted children, or maybe you have been the adopted child, this language is is very, very meaningful to you, isn't it? Adoption is nothing short of a miracle, both in a worldly sense and in a heavenly sense. When my mom was born, uh, she was put up for adoption. Uh, Her mom was a teenager, and the pregnancy was unplanned. And by God's grace, my mom found herself in a home with uh, a loving mom and dad. See, in that instant, through the miracle of adoption, In one moment, my mother had nothing. In the next, she had everything. Through adoption, she soon found she had a mom and a dad, a house to grow up in, a little brother to fight with, a vacation home to go to, and all the privileges that came with being part of the family. In an instant, it changed. This is the miracle of adoption, both in a earthly sense and in a heavenly sense. And this miracle, John says, Christ said, you have to hear me, is what happened to you and me when we encountered Christ. In an instant, we go from having nothing to having everything. We have become, indeed, children of God. Now, I know there are some on this call right now who think the doctrine of adoption and being called children of God sounds quite fluffy, and, and sort of uh, airy and sort of, you know, all, all fuzzy. And you're not really into the fuzzy, warm stuff. You're kind of more into the theological stuff. You know, we love to talk in certain circles of the church, uh, conservative, reform circles like we're very much a part of, about justification being the highest blessing of the gospel. And no doubt, justification is a blessing. If if you're new to Christianity and you're wondering what I'm talking about, justification is the simple fact that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, the price he paid on the cross, we are declared not guilty before our judge, the Father. We are freed from the penalty of sin. That's what justification means. And it is good news that we are justified. This is good news. But I would suggest to you, along with Packer, that justification is not the highest blessing of the gospel. Listen to what Packer says again from Knowing God. Adoption, he writes, is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. 
Justification is a forensic idea, conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So what does it mean to be a child of God? It means that the judge who has declared you not guilty of your sins in Christ has taken off his robes and and walked down from the bench and put down his gavel and embraced you and said, now you're coming home with me. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means that our yearning for belonging is finally satisfied. That in our heavenly father, we have a dad who will not leave us nor forsake us, who is holding on to us, keeping us, preserving us. But not only that, you've been joined to brothers and sisters in Christ who will be with you forever. And so you better start loving them now. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means that we don't have to strive to make it in this world on our own steam. You know, I think about those people who came to this country having to build everything from the ground up, start fresh from zero. But that's not the way it is in Christ. In Christ, we have all the Father's resources at our disposal. We have every advantage Every gift, every blessing is now ours to live and move and have our being in this world. See, because of God, we can know God. Because of God, we can know God. That's why the ancient preacher John Chrysostom wrote these words, commentating on a passage in Galatians. Had not we been first made sons, we could not have called him father. Had not we been first made his children, we could not have called him Abba, Father, our Father. Consider again how much say my mom had in her adoption. You know, think of a newborn. Some of you have had new babies, and you understand how helpless they are. Consider how helpless a newborn is. They're not not sitting there flipping through different profiles of families. Oh, I wonder where I'll go. Or I wonder how I can improve my test score or my appearance in order to get myself in a better family. No, a newborn is helpless. Helpless. And my mom would have remained helpless unless my grandfather and grandmother set their heart on her. Adoption is an act of God and God alone to bring us into his family now and forever. This is is what it means to be a child of of God. And Christ City, what I want to suggest this morning is that this is a controlling identity and thought and reality that ought to change our life. That this is the foundation, the relational foundation that ought to change everything about how you live now. In our text this morning, John is going to say that children of God exhibit four character traits. I'll put those up on the screen. John's going to say that we exhibit these four character traits in our life as children of God. First, he'll say that we have a confidence about us. 
Secondly, he'll say that we practice righteousness. Thirdly, he'll say that we live with sober expectations about this world and what it can give us. And then fourthly and finally, he'll point to the hopefulness that is ours as children of God. So go to 1 John 2, verse 28. And I want us to see the confidence that comes from being children of God. Read that together with me. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The child of God has confidence on the day of Jesus' appearing. Look again at your Bibles. This word appearing has already appeared in 1 John so far. But so far it has referred to Jesus' incarnation, his first appearing, if you will. But here, the appearing is in reference to Jesus' second coming, Jesus' return at the end of the age. And listen to how this second appearing or this second coming is described uh, and this day is described in John's revelation. Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. This is the appearing that is to come. Then I saw, John writes, heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. See, Jesus will appear again. This word coming that we have in 1 John is this Greek word parousia. And and literally the idea here is of a triumphant king coming back from battle and people are lining the streets. Crowds are forming to welcome and celebrate and worship the returning king. This is the day of Jesus' second appearing that John has in mind here. And John tells us that in view of this terrifying day, this day of judgment, our confidence is only this that as God's children, we continue to abide in him. That we continue to abide in him. I don't know if you picked it up in 1 John 3, verse 1, but John said that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See, John wants really to communicate the confidence you should have as a Christian. This is not just a title that we bear. It is true of our nature. So we are. So it is true. We really indeed are these children of God. But notice, as we look back at verse 28, it is only children of God who will enjoy this confidence at Jesus' second appearing. Those who are not God's children will, John writes, shrink from shame at his coming. Now, I want to be very clear. The idea that John is conveying here is not one of like, embarrassment. You know, we think of like going to a fancy party underdressed and I'm embarrassed, like, oh, this is a fancy party and I'm wearing, you know, shorts and a t-shirt, right? We, we think maybe, you know, just in our modern mindset that maybe Jesus is referring, or John's referring to some idea of Jesus coming and him being holy and we're not holy and so we're a bit embarrassed about that. No, that, that's not what John has in mind when he writes 1 John 2, 28. John is saying at his second coming, at Jesus' triumphal return, Jesus will actively put to shame Satan 
the demonic, and all those who are not his children. He comes to judge and make war, John says. And the confidence that we have in this, that John wants to give his readers, is that we are his children. Confidence that despite the family and the friends and the church folk who last week we saw went out from us because they were not of us, that despite that, you and I as God's children will be vindicated on this last day. You can have this confidence if you're a child of God. Well, how do I know if I'm a child of God? Look at 1 John 2 verse 29. If you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, we've seen that before, right? Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The child of God practices righteousness because God himself is righteous. Despite what we might be tempted to believe, I want us to be clear about what John is saying. He's not saying that all people who do good are children of God. He's not suggesting some sort of do-gooder universalism here. No, in a couple of weeks, John will make pretty clear about who is a Christian, who is a follower of Jesus, who is in the truth. He'll say in 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. No, John is not arguing in our text for a sort of do-gooder universalism. Rather, true righteousness can only be done and accomplished as a result of spiritual rebirth, being born again, to borrow Jesus' language from John 3. In other words, only children of God have the character of their father. Now, if you're a parent you know that this is a horrifying reality that your kids will do exactly what you do. Even if you don't have kids, you, you might, might have discovered recently that you now do and say things that your parents did and you're horrified. It's just embarrassing, right? I, I sometimes say things and I hear my dad and, and, I, and I, you know, I love my dad, but I, I, I'm horrified. Same thing with our kids. The other day, I was walking by the bathroom, and I saw one of our children uh, on the toilet reading The Economist, just sitting there. And I thought to myself, well, there you go, like father, like son. See, there is an imitative relationship we have with our heavenly, our heavenly parents. The same thing is true in the heavenly realities. The more we abide in Christ, the more we look like Christ, smell like Christ, and one of the stories I come back to over and over again comes out of Acts 4. Peter and John are these uneducated fishermen, and they're preaching boldly and winsomely, and they're healing people, and people are coming to know Jesus. And so they're brought before the tribunal and the judges. And in Acts 4.13, we read this coming from the lips of those who would oppose Peter and John. Look at what it says. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Now, what is the reason? What is the reason these, these leaders, these religious leaders gave for how this transformation could have occurred? And they recognized, Luke records, that they had been with Jesus. 
I don't know about you, but at my funeral, I want someone to say of me, and not just because I said it now in a sermon, but I want someone to say of me that Jake had been with Jesus. He'd spend time with Jesus, looked like Jesus. And so I want to ask this morning, Christ City, as a way of inviting you more and more into the identity which is already yours, whose child are you? Who do you talk like, spend your money like, love like, celebrate like, mourn like, through acts of righteousness like? Could it be said of you that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Children of God act like him. And the good news is when we practice righteousness as Jesus practiced righteousness, we walk in this amazing confidence for the day of his second appearing. Now I want to pause for a moment. So far, Christianity has seemed pretty up and to the right, right? We've got adoption, leading to righteousness, doing good things, leading to confidence. This is a pretty sweet deal, right? Christianity seems pretty, pretty good. But here's where the rubber meets the road. John will tell us, and we'll see in a moment, that children of God are not going to be celebrated by this world. They're not going to be received by this world. I want to read 1 John 3, verse 1 again, and this time that entire verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, John writes, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then listen to this, Christ City. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It it is hard to be a child of God now. If it's just good things and just blessing and just positive and up and to the right, Wouldn't people be lining up for adoption? But here's the truth. If we're going to be children who look like Jesus, we should expect it to be treated like Jesus. In John 15, one of the most oft-quoted chapters in the Bible, Jesus draws a clear line, a clear parallel between following him being his disciple, and being hated by this world. Look at John 15, verses 18 and 19 with me. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I am very suspicious of the Christianity that is loved by this world. And so should you. I'm very suspicious of the Christianity that is celebrated by the media, celebrated by the world. I'm very suspicious of the church who looks and smells and sounds so much like the world that pretty much is the world and is indistinguishable from the world. John does not say, let me be clear, that the world will hate you because you were a jerk or self-righteous or foolish. But he does say that your transformed identity will be an indictment on the world and the things that it loves. 
And as we've seen so far in this series, when we attack the world and its idols, we should expect a violent response. Even in our context of this passage, as we practice righteousness, as we do good things. I think there's this pernicious myth, this deadly myth that is cancerous in nature that exists in the Western church in particular, that if we are winsome enough, or wise enough, or careful enough, or tactful enough, or well-read enough, that we can somehow avoid the hatred of this world. That we can somehow exist in this third space of sort of negotiating between the two, just with our cleverness. And that the Christians who face persecution, at least in our society, are just those brash individuals who are foolish enough to get in trouble. Now, I, I don't know if any of us would articulate that, but I think it exists in our hearts. Now, should we be wise? Should we be winsome? Should our speech be seasoned with grace? Yes, and yes, and yes. But none of this will protect you from the hatred of the world, the rejection of this world. And I wonder how much of the sadness and despair that we experience in our church, including in myself, is a result not of the sinful state of the world, but that the sinful world does not accept me or celebrate me. We want both. We want the applause of man and the applause of God. We want the world to like what we're doing, and we want God to like what we're doing. We want Jesus to be our Lord, but we also want the approval of society on top of that. Friends, children of God should have sober expectations for this life. There's something called the Coleman Gap. And I was to chart it out for you if I had a whiteboard. Basically a line, if you can see me right now, going this way, and it's your expectations. And there's a line underneath that called reality. And the further those two lines are from each other, expectations and reality, they've noted this in different studies, the greater your unhappiness in this world is called the Coleman Gap. Do we have sober expectations for this life? Do our expectations meet reality as followers of Jesus? See, the good news is that as we have increasingly sober expectations for this world and of this world, we at the same time gain increasingly hopeful expectations for the next. Let's read our last two verses together as we conclude. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, today, we are children of God but an even higher title awaits us at Jesus' second appearing. But it'll be more than a title. It'll be a likeness to Jesus to such an extent we, we could never have imagined. We, we don't know exactly what John is talking about here. We don't know exactly the mystery to which he alludes to in these verses. But whatever it is, we can be sure of this. It will be a gift of love that outshines my donuts, 
and even our adoption as children of God. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If I could choose one characteristic of a child of God, of the four that I've listed that we've walked through, confidence, righteousness, sober expectations, and hopefulness, I would say all these must exist, but I think hope is what is most important. See, John ends our passage today by saying, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What is the reason we should pursue purity? What is the reason we should pursue righteousness? What is the reason for our confidence? Why do we uh, persevere and endure such sober expectations for this life? Because our hope is firmly placed in the Father. Our hope is firmly in the Father who has called us children. Our hope is in the one who will welcome us into his family once and for all at the second appearing of his son Jesus. Children of God, above all else, are children not of despair but of hope. And I recognize that as I say those words right now, that for many of you this season has been marked by many things except hope. And I want to acknowledge that. And I want to encourage you this morning to look to your Father. I want to end with a word, if you're hopeless this morning, from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul writes something in Ephesians 1, verse 5 and verse 18. Well, he says something and then he prays something. And I want to end this morning by saying something to you in the same pastoral heart as Paul that he says in verse 5 and then praying something over you like he prays over the church in Ephesus in verse 18. You don't have to go there in your Bible. Just look at the screen. First, hear the saying, and second, receive the prayer. Paul writes, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. That's the theological truth, Christ City. Hear it, receive it, believe it this morning. And then Paul prays this. I want to make it our prayer this morning. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Let's pray together. So, Father, we come this morning needing to hope against hope, needing an external hope to come and color and indeed shape how we live today. Father, may we be those who practice righteousness as you are righteous. And in doing so, may we walk in confidence that indeed we are your children. And Father, for those of us on this call right now who perhaps had higher expectations for this life before your son's second appearing, Father, would you correct us now? Would you help us to see 
the hope that we are to have in you. And in causing us to long for what we will be like, would you cause us to at the same time live faithfully in this world and in this life? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.